everyone. Welcome to another episode of Colubrid and Colubroid Radio. Uh, Zach here. Matt's with me as well, as always. How you doing, Matt? Oh, time to record a session, finally. Yeah. I mean, come on, Zach. You're the one killing us here <laughs> on these recording sessions. Yeah, you know, technology and Zach doesn't get along. I'm a creep cretin. like to be outside. Um, but yeah, no... Matt and I, first of all, little apology. Sorry, it's been a little while. I think it's been four or five weeks since we dropped an episode. I tried to record an episode with our next guest, uh, and we'll just leave it at technical difficulties kept that from happening. Uh, but we're here today, and our guest today is Mike Rapley, who we'll be talking to about his time in herpetoculture and specifically where colubrids fall in that uh, mix. But before we get to Mike, we're going to do our typical just updates on where Matt and I are um, with our colubrids. We, I have officially pulled almost everybody out of brumation. Um, the only thing that's left, Matt and I were talking about this, I'm letting my Japanese rat snakes go for a real long time period. Um, just going to see if my male fertility increases with that. Uh, done some pairing. I'm not really seeing much activity yet. Um, the big news for me is that I had three pairs of false water cobras breeding back at the beginning of the year, and all indications are pointing towards all three of those girls being gravid. So once again, lots of false water cobras being produced. So if you're into that and you're interested, uh, hit me up because we're definitely going to have babies this year. And this year, we don't really have projects where the babies have to stick around for a while. So uh, we're going to be looking to move those animals. But other than that, uh, I've been busy. My field season has now officially started. So I uh, was in South Carolina last week starting up a project in, in and around Newberry, South Carolina, if you know where that is, in Sumter National Forest. And we bumped into four snakes being that I'm from West Virginia, we don't find snakes in February. So finding snakes in February was pretty awesome. And of the four, three were pit vipers, which was even better. So we got two nice big cottonmouths and a beautiful canebrake uh, rattlesnake. And then everybody knows I love my Nerodia, the first Nerodia of the year, uh, banded rattlesnake, or not rattlesnake, banded water snake. Um, and then I'm off to the field again and I'm heading down to Florida to work on another project. So We'll report what we find or what I find and the students and I find uh, next episode. So, Matt, what's up with you? Because you haven't exactly been still oh, either. Man. No, no, no. I mean, I just had to throw you under the bus <laughs> to start this off. Um, no, it's been um exciting time. I mean, right now, I, I just turned on heat to most of everything. I mean, we're kind of warming up. It's been a really difficult winter to put things down into extreme cold. Um, and in, in terms of temperature wise, I think most of my collections sat around nighttime lows, about 56 degrees Fahrenheit and mm -hmm. daytime temperatures around 60 to 63. So, you know, kind of test the odds, but you know, we obviously do feed cycle and light cycle the animals accordingly, but I've started to pair up some animals. Um, a majority of the Asians have already locked too as well which is really interesting and exciting mm. um so hopefully we're we're in for a good season and that's before i've done any first meals for any of these animals so i'm under the impression 
and this has always been something I've played with, is in the wild, these animals are going to come out of brumation, and they could end up finding a mate early on. So I don't follow the typical shed cycle of wait till a shed cycle occurs and then introduce animals. The minute that I start warming up animals and start light cycling, I actually start introducing animals as long as they're healthy and responsive. Yeah. I think there's, well, there's a tremendous amount of field data that supports that argument uh, because when you're all in the same spot and then you come out of hibernation to dis- and disperse across the landscape, makes a whole lot of sense while everyone's together to get your breeding out. That's exactly what the red-sided garter snakes do up in Manitoba. So, uh, but no, that's pretty interesting. I've, I've put, like the listeners know, I got into king snakes. Um, I put a bunch of kings together and I've had some cuddling under hides, no sheds yet. Um, and we have a massive project going on at West Liberty right now. We're breeding a lot of stuff. It's really cool when you have students that can basically monitor all these things literally like every other hour, which is, I don't know anybody that has this resource, but me. So it's kind of cool. But um, a couple kids are making this their capstone project. And it's been kind of interesting. I think our first actual, the animals were put together last last week. Um, and we have corns, bulls, gophers, hogs. Uh, I'm probably forgetting something. Um, bimaculata are, are in that mix too. Um, and today we had our first courting behavior with a corn snake. And no one shed. So we're going to do a little study to look and see how many locks we get without sheds. And how many locks we get post sheds to test your theory. So there you go. Good stuff. I see a paper coming up mm-hmm. right there. We're hoping. So, yeah. So that's all I have. Are, are you good to go? I'm good to go. I think it's a good time to introduce our guest for tonight. Okay. So our guest tonight is Mike Rapley. Uh, Mike and Matt go a ways back. And I'm going to pass the baton to Matt to kind of introduce Mike since yeah. he's a good friend. So Mike and I kind of started introductory and conversations a couple years back now with regards to Asian rat snakes. And during that time, it it came to find that we shared many similar passions with reptile husbandry, as well as some creative ideas. And it's kind of kept that relationship growing in terms of some of our conversations, something that I always find very interesting um, because you never know the people you're going to meet in the hobby Mm -hmm. itself. And it's always really cool to keep your circles small for genuine people that are actually very interested in the animals, uh, first and foremost. That, hey, well, first off, uh, thank you for the invite. Um, I really appreciate it. I spent some time looking at some of the other podcasts, and uh, um, I, I think it's fair to say I'm a virgin to podcasts, so this is my first one. And uh, But I did listen to some of them before, and it was... Uh, it was pretty cool, man. I mean, kudos for you guys for pulling this together and making this happen. It uh, they were really enjoyable, and uh, I first see myself, you know, sitting down and listening to to a few more of them. So, but uh, but my, and I'll just highlight, um, Matt. Uh, it was Cameron Templeton out of uh, Bushmaster Reptiles. We've been longtime friends, probably since back in college days when I first met him. But um, we were chatting, and he said you were the uh, you were the Asian rat snake king. And if I needed anything, uh, so he's the one that actually pointed me to you. Um, and uh, I think I can't remember if I was asking him for a specific species or 
or just information. And, uh, and he, anyway, regardless, he said you were the go-to guy. So, um, that's how we, uh, that's how we connected, which is good. Yeah. So, but yeah, you're right. Ever since it's just been uh, nonstop, even though like, dude, you are the hardest guy to get a hold of. I thought I was <laughs> all I get from this guy is him complaining how, how heavy his bag of gold is his job. now. <laughs> it's so heavy. Even carry all this gold of what I'm doing and my snack anyway. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Well, I mean, it, it has been a very interesting start to the year, that's to say the least, and then to start into the breeding season right off the bat. Mm-hmm. But um, the other hard part, if you have texted me in the past, sometimes we'll start going on real long tangents, and then nothing. I, I, I am like a <laughs> squirrel sometimes, and it's like, <laughs> wait, what happened? Yeah. <laughs> um, but it, it happens. It happens. It does. You know what, though? It, it, Matt will pick up like we'll go back and forth on a topic and a month will go by and I won't hear anything from him and then he will respond back on the tail end of that text as if it was happening right now yes. and I'll see I'll be like wow um, I, have to go, I have to go scroll back up to figure out what we were talking about to get caught up but Matt's right there man so. yeah I can respect <laughs> that absolutely 100% I know what that's like so that's awesome. kudos to you Asian rat snake king there you go rat snake king man that's uh that's a title to own right Mm -hmm. there i guess something like that and you're considering the sports you know cameron's uh cameron's his own lord in his own realm so it uh is good good stuff that's true yeah oh man so mike how'd you get into this i mean what's your backstory with reptiles amphibians turtles tortoises i mean you've got a pretty diverse background in terms of your not only keeping history, but your relation in herpet culture too. Yeah. You know, I mean, when you think about, I'm sure you guys have a very similar background, right? Growing up as a kid, you spent all your time outdoors. I grew up in Colorado and uh, I lived in a subdivision that had, or our house kind of backed up to this gully and Mm -hmm. you could follow the gully all the way down to this Creek. And man, I spent probably most of my childhood, um in that gully and in in that uh following that dry creek right down to that that lake and and looking for snakes and turtles and and anything else frogs fish anything that i could find was is uh um where, where i you know that was just my thing it just i don't even know how to explain it outside of almost every day that's what i was out there doing and um but I, it didn't seem different or odd it was just yep. you were just kids out there doing it right i had a couple other buddies that um that we just i would run to his house and we would run down we we made our own makeshift snake sticks and and bags and and uh turtle turtle bags i guess you could call them at the time but yeah that's for me that that's where it all started and and quite honestly i can't even remember a time in my life where there wasn't reptiles part of it even through college just uh i had i had a snake or snakes or something that was there and um so yeah, I know you're saying I was a turtle guy, and I, and and I am a, a turtle guy. But you know, when you when you when you step back and think about like sort of life and what you've been interested interested in, it's reptiles as a whole. I think mm-hmm. everything. You know, we were just talking about isopods, and people are paying these crazy money for these five isopods that are coming from somewhere, and and yet if you go in your backyard, man, it's like there is such cool stuff back there, and the uh, the natural history of some of this stuff. As a kid, for me anyway. Um, I just, I couldn't, I, we, we used to make a, um, 
well, I shouldn't, I don't know if I should say this or not, but we used to go to construction sites and borrow some of their lumber uh, <laughs> and, and make our own uh, clubhouse in the gully. And, um, and that was my first sort of snake room because my, my folks wouldn't let me uh, keep snakes at the house. So we had to figure out a way to go do that. And I mean, looking back, you just think, oh my gosh, we, we would scavenge every garage sale. I mean, honestly, do you guys know what, I mean, I'm sure you can relate. You're driving with your parents in a car, you see this garage sale and your excitement trying to see what, what uh, uh, aquarium you could see over there that you could go and get, you know? And, and um, I mean, I spent most of my childhood chasing down aquariums, building lids, whatever. And, um, and uh, yeah, I mean, that, that's for me where it started. I remember the first time I got a, um, the magic of birds and the bees too. Right. So I had, we used to, like I said, I had all these aquariums set up and, and I had um, collected this, uh, I can't even remember what kind of snake it was. It might've been a, um, just a, a garter snake, but um, maybe a neurotia or something, but, but uh, I had it in a cage and I had, I found it right before I was going to school and I came home from school and all of a sudden there was the snake plus 10 other little snakes. And I was like, for the life of me, I, it took me a while to connect what happened. I've never <laughs> seen that before. I was a kid and you're like, how in the world did they all get in there like that? You know, anyway, um, <laughs> Good stuff. Crazy stuff. Yep. Yeah, that's that's for me. That's where it started as a kid, and then just um, you know, you uh, you go through college, and um, in fact, I was I, at the time I was looking at um, doing. I was pre vet for a while, and then I was looking at you know herpetology as a as a, as a major, and ultimately I, I I went into physiology. But um, but that was you know I was trying to figure out what I wanted to go do, mm-hmm. and uh, those were my uh, those were my those were my passions at the time: herpetology, veterinary medicine, and, and human physiology. So, um, but I, I I did human physiology as a as a major at school, and then um, uh, but I had snakes and reptiles and stuff all through there. Um, I grew up in Colorado. There was a at the time there, and I, I think it's still there. Um, uh, I'm trying to blank. Um, it's called Scales and Tails out in Colorado, and it was uh, rich. Rich. Um, oh, he's he's still there. I mean, absolute great guy. But he he uh, he ran that store, and it for us as kids, man, a reptile store back in the '80s and '90s, man. Oh my gosh, man! You you know you. Uh, I had books like Strangest Creatures of the World that I would just. I mean, my, my folks sent it to me a few years ago. It is in bits and pieces and I've taped it and whatever, but it's, it's like on display up there. Cause like, that was the book that like, you just remember sitting there on your floor of your kitchen, yep. right. Scrolling through this book, drooling over these crazy things. And, um, and, uh, so having this store there, it was, uh, in fact, um, I bought my first snake from, from, from rich. It was a, uh, a Mexican black King snake. Now, now mind you, what I really wanted was the black snake next to it, which was an indigo, and uh, and that was really it was a lot more expensive than the the, the black king. But um, but uh, so I felt like I was uh, it was a good compromise. It was still black, it was still cool, and and uh, I had that snake probably for fifteen to twenty years before it passed away. But but yeah, so I was I was always a snake guy, and then um, and then after college. Uh, you know what makes this fun? I mean, the three of us are sitting here having a conversation about snakes and we're talking, whatever. Um, it, but it's the partnerships you build with with your friends, right? Um, 
you know, uh, maybe you guys have a specific species that, you know, you and two of your other friends are, are partners on and you guys are all working it together. And when he comes over or they come over, they're all chit-chatting about what they did and whatever. Like that, that's where all this excitement and the fun comes, right? I mean, it, yep. it makes this, uh, I mean, it's enjoyable by itself, but having that collaboration between uh, your friends, it just puts it over the top. So when I was sort of halfway through college and then kind of, you know, starting off in careers, um, I had uh, two other buddies and we were really into uh, boil boys. So Amazon tree boas, tree boas, but Amazon tree boas, this is before everybody, it was really into Amazon tree boas and you had all these different morphs. They were just, they were like bags of Skittles, man. You, you would get work with Amazon tree boas and you would never know what colors you're going to get. There were yellows and reds and blacks. And I mean, just, really, really cool. So, um, we, the, the three of us kind of came up with our own bloodline, if you would, but we called it, uh, it was, uh, uh, his name, the first name was Lou. Uh, other guy was, uh, Court Offerman, who is a, a vet up now up in Austin, but, uh, at the time we were just cornholes in college, but, um, and, and myself. So it was, uh, Lou Cormick, Lou, Cord, and Mike, we put our names together and came up with our own bloodline. But, but, uh, anyway, it, it, it's it's what made it fun at the time, and we were swapping babies and all the, all that stuff. And and um, but then life happens, right? You know, you mm-hmm. you uh, my snake. I got married, kids, um, homes. Snake room became a baby room. Wife wasn't happy on trying to split the difference and have a baby snake room together. Um, so I, I converted. I know, right? Marriage is compromised. <laughs> yes. Um, sometimes you don't you don't win those battles. They can share a heat pad. They can. You know. I, See, where were you when I needed you back then? I think that would have been a good selling point. Um, waiting, waiting to respond to a text a week later. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, where were you? Um, so uh, you know, I I sort of I didn't. I was at that transition point, and um, and I I was I just moved to Houston, and uh, Cameron had actually sent me actually the first kind of. Um, Asian turtles I ever got were Chinese box turtles. And, um, and I really didn't know much about the plight of Asian species at the time. Um, and, uh, as I was trying to figure out how to take care of them, my wife and I were researching it and we find out that they're, they're, uh, really under a, a ton of threat right now, at least at that time and still now. And so it was like, Oh my gosh. So as we find out more about their plight, um, you're finding them in food markets and in, in, in pet shops and stuff. And, Next thing you know, it was an easy transition from the, the baby room being the baby room and, and snakes kind of transitioned into becoming turtles. And and uh, so my snake collection kind of got converted into turtles. And I, my backyard ended up being this, you know, <laughs> massive turtle backyard, but um, which has been absolutely uh, outstanding and very, very cool. And, uh, and when you step back and look at it from a learning perspective, so much about um, learning about reptiles and learning about these different species, uh, Asian rep- Asian species as a whole, like there's just not a lot of data on them, right? Not a lot of information supporting their natural history, where they come from, what temperatures they're exposed to, what their humidity levels are like, what they even eat, what 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 niche they felt or they were meeting in, in their natural habitat. Like all of that is just gone. So you have this species that you're really just on. By the time we got them, they were... Um, you know, depending on your source, Cameron did a really good job about bringing in quality animals that were in relatively good shape. Um, but, but it's the stress and where, you know, from where they're collected to, by the time you get it, 
um, what they've gone through and what they've been uh, exposed to. Um, you know, it's like COVID here, you know, our immune system hasn't ever been exposed to this virus. Um, uh, versions of it, yes, but not this virus. And you can see how it just um, just decimates um, a number of uh, uh, people's immune system. Some people are, are, you know, go through it and they handle it fine. Others are, are uh, you know, on their on their deathbed in, in, in the ERs uh, on ventilators. So um, same thing with with uh, with these animals. They're exposed to pathogens they, their immune system's never seen. And uh, and the stress of it all, it's it's um, I think stress plays a huge role. I think it, by, by the time you get that animal, it is so beyond its limit on stress. Uh, nothing, none of its physiology is functioning correctly. And um, and uh, but you're so you're, you're you're trying to triage it and stabilize it at the same time, trying to figure out how you can even get it to to um, at least survive, uh, let alone thrive and breed in captivity. And I think that was a lot of the, the passion and the challenge at the time was just trying to get these animals to be stable enough that one, they'd want to eat. And two, um, if you were lucky, you'd get them to, to, to be healthy enough to actually want to breed and, and, and reproduce. So, um, and, and that, that whole process, uh, for me, the, the, the strategy for even quarantining animals um, all came from from managing Asian turtles and and managing their overall stress, um, and especially especially when they first come in, you, you see it on, online a lot too. Even now, I see people um, get their animals in. The first thing they want to do is, is hold it and show people and take snapshots and put it on 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 the internet. And you know, my I, I just want to take that animal. For me, what I do is I put them in a. I have these. Uh, absolute black boxes. They got holes drilled in the side um, and uh, they're managed at, at about 78 degrees, um, hide boxes, branches, um, and and, uh, and a water bowl. And they're left. They're just left um, in a quiet room uh, for months, probably. Um, and I'll, I'll just periodically feed them and then slowly transition them out of that enclosure into something that's more uh, open and display. Um, and I think that ultimately getting them to to de-stress and 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 to calm down and to allow their their I mean if you think about the the these animals never want to be removed from the wild they're always in defensive posture and the stress is high so you can only imagine by the time they 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 get collected by the time you get it um, their their physiology is just jacked and so trying to get them to stabilize of course we want to medicate it and and treat it and sometimes that's almost the worst option because they're just their, 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 their physiology is just not stable enough to act to able, able to properly process meds and, and those kind of things. And sometimes you do more damage than good, even though your intention is trying to, to stabilize it. So anyway, managing quarantine and stress, those are the, to me, those are the big things when we start talking about Asian species. So. Oh man, I, I think it's in just general. I yeah. think that's a topic that a lot of people overlook, um, oh. especially when, mm-hmm. you know, you get into the physiology and, really what some of these animals have gone through yeah you know um yeah especially when you start to talk about um first time offered species in the hobby yeah um you know depending on their collective strategy on how they were collected i mean heck even for like african species they just collect those things hang them up in bags and trees and they sit there for weeks until a buyer comes or they go to the the meat market or skin market and are then traded off and they're just being exposed to, you know, numerous bacteria, viruses, lack of water, lack of food, all, all uh, of feces. Yeah. 
dehydration is a big thing. I mean, mm-hmm. what, you know, the, the, the sort of strategy that, and, and honestly, I, I, when everything goes into quarantine, it's all individual. So no, every animal's by itself. Um, they're split apart. Um, and, uh, what's nice about it is, um, you know, for the first month, if, uh, I just offer it food, everything gets food, um, probably every other day. And, uh, if it eats great, um, if it doesn't, um, I make notes on it and, uh, and you just track that one, but, but nine times out of 10, if you leave them alone, let them calm down, um, they will start eating on their own. If you give them time, um, uh, not always for sure. I mean, some of these things come in, they're pretty septic and they, they need more meds, but, um, but, but as a whole, and even, even, um, snakes, even these Grabowski, when they came in, um, their behavior when they first came in, um, and the way they act right now are at night and day there, I, I would have never expected them to be, have the behavior they're having right now and be as interactive as they are from when they first came in. They were just very, um, stressed out, st- stayed hidden, um, never interacted, always, always defensive. Um, and now, uh, even when I go into the, the, the reptile room, I mean, they are up and out and, uh, and watching, they watch everything I do. And it's the, quite honestly, it's the coolest thing. It's just cool to, to be in there and knowing that, um, one, they're calm enough that even when I open the glass door, um, you know, they're not, no, they want to eat me for sure. I mean, that there's no doubt. I open that up. They are thinking I'm either going to feed them or I am food, but they're not scared. And, uh, and, and so their, their behavior is, is, uh, is bad. Anyway, um, it, it's, nice. uh, that, that to me is a kind of the cool stuff that, you know, you, you, you get to experience when you, when you're working with some of these animals. So it's cool. Yeah. So currently the snakes you have are colubrids, correct? For the most um, part. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, for the most part. I mean, I think, um, I do have, uh, you know, uh, Boreal snakes are just come on. I mean, they're yeah. just cool. Anything that hangs in the tree, um, I mean, you can't. So I have uh, I have some emerald tree boas um, and a few other um, odds and ends that that I've had for a while. But for the most part, it's colubrids. Yeah. So definitely. with the colubrids, um, why? What about the colubrids do you like the most? Because this is one of our standard questions. We're kind of trying hmm. to speak the gospel of colubridy. So. What about them do you find rewarding compared to your emeralds? Not that the emeralds aren't rewarding because they certainly are, but yeah, but they're different beasts altogether. So, <laughs> you know what? Um, uh, it's different. Like when I when I think about what what gets me excited about um, working with emeralds and working with um, with uh, uh, colubrids, um, an emerald tree boa, if it's fat and it and it and it's healthy and it eats and it, and it defecates and it hangs on a perch. You feel like that's awesome, right? It's just a, <laughs> yes. a green a green worm on a branch, and it and they're beautiful, and I think they're just absolutely amazing species. But but uh, that's not that's not where um, I appreciate colubrids. I mean, they are, um, you know, all of the cages that I've been I've been sort of building in, in this room are uh, I want them to be I want it to be as close as I can to what I think based on what I've been able to read from where they're from and not for any other reason outside of, I want to be able to walk in there and they're interactive, right? You see them mm-hmm. moving and hunting. And when you walk in there, watching them do that, uh, to me, colubrids are just the perfect species for that. You, they are absolutely great display animals. The, the variety and the color and the behaviors and, and 
I mean, the size, they're, 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 they're not huge snakes. Um, well, some of them are, I shouldn't say that there are, there are large colubrids, but the stuff that I work with is relatively small. Um, and, uh, and, and it doesn't take up a lot of space. Asian species. I love a lot because, um, uh, the management from a, a, a heat and, and, and that kind of stuff, they're, they're relatively, in fact, I would argue that they, they don't like heat. Um, yep. you know, when you look at Asian species of it's even turtles, um, I think we heat our animals way, way too much. Uh, even, even stuff that, that we, that, that isn't Asian. I think we, we rely on heat more than we need to. I think that, um, and, and it, it doesn't necessarily hurt them, but I, I definitely think like Asian species for sure. Um, they're not, they're not used to that. They don't necessarily need it. Even the Grabowski, um, I have very hardly any heat on those animals at all. And they are thriving right now. So, um, but that's one of the things that I just like it, it, uh, they don't necessarily require having heat pads and heat lights and all that stuff. Um, and, uh, and the other part that's, that's great is there's always something going on in yes. one of the cages at some point. It's all, it's constant. They're, they're not diurnal. They're, they're not nocturnal. I mean, they are a bit of both, but I would argue depending on the time of year, um, their behavior changes. And it's just really, really cool to be able to interact that and go in at night and see a species that, that you haven't seen um, out and about, but it's out and about roaming and doing stuff. So, um, and, and feeding is, feeding is, is, um, I don't know how you guys feed, but I, I, uh, again, it goes back to like, these animals are in our care and captivity. And, um, sure. I can take a snake uh, or a rodent and, 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 and put it in front of the snake and he'll wrap up on it and eat it. That's me feeding the snake. But, um, just from a, 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 enjoyment perspective from a species in a cage um i leave i don't do anything i leave everything on a plate and and i put it in there first thing in the morning and uh and it's there all day and and but usually by, by the morning it's gone now granted it it, it does worry I, most of it's thought out um uh but it and it, it'll stay over there for probably 15 hours uh before i remove it if they haven't eaten it but but for the most part it's gone by by the following morning um, and I just like that because it's not me doing anything. Um, it's wherever that snake is. It smells the, uh, the rodent or the, or the, or the food item. And, uh, it is out hunting and searching. And, and I think we just, um, I think we, we neglect that in our captive care. We, we have a tendency to want to just, uh, put the rodent in front of the snake and let it eat and uh, let it get fat so we can breed it and then, uh, and have babies. So, uh, but there's more to, more of this herp herpiculture stuff than just, uh, feeding and, 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 uh, getting eggs. So. That's for sure. Um, you know, like you and I and Zach, we've, we've all talked about this. I mean, I think the natural foraging behavior of these animals is something that, you know, we yeah. undermine. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I think it also increases their intellectual curiosity as well as helps to relieve some of that stress where, you know, if you're slapping the animal across the face with a rodent, you know, yeah, don't do that. It's probably not going to be the best thing either. So, well, yeah, you know, and I, I definitely, um, I, I, you know, just like you guys had said, said before, you've, you've inter interviewed a, a number of people and everybody's got their own techniques and their own strategies. And at the end of the day, it really boils down to what is, why, why is it? And you're asking me that question too. Why, why, why do you work with colubrid snakes? Um, for me, it's that part. I want the enjoyment. And I think colubrids are just a great species to be able to interact with beyond just feeding and breeding. I mean, they're, I want to be able to be in that room and, and see something happening and wondering what, 
what is it that it's doing? Why is it doing that? And, um, and be able to have that sort of question of why is it behaving that way? Um, so for me, that, that, that's, that's a big part of it. And I know that other people, um, maybe it's, it's the fact that they want to breed the genetics and, and, uh, and, and pull out the blues or the reds. I think that is absolutely uh, awesome as well. I think that's great. Um, but for me personally, I think it's more about um, just understanding the, the animal itself and, um, and seeing it behave in a way that, that uh, um, maybe, maybe we haven't seen it before. So it's cool. Yeah. So Mike, um, other than your 3,000 rubber ducky isopods that you're breeding for <laughs> continuous um, reptile cage improvement, yeah. um, what, what does the rest of your collection look like? Um, wow. You know, so part of my collection is growing, right? I think I told you guys, I, I, uh, I just sort of transitioned. Um, so I have a space, uh, um, of a reptile room. And, um, one of the things I was trying to manage was the humidity level. When you have turtles, um, being able to, to manage humidity is a big deal. And, um, and living in Houston, managing humidity outdoors and indoors is a big deal. And so I was growing um, a little tolerant or intolerant with going into a reptile room that was constantly as hot or humid as being outside in Houston. So um, I, uh, and honestly, quite honestly, just to get to touch on turtles a little, last little bit, um, they just do better outside. I mean, yeah. we're in Southeast uh, um, United States and, and the, the climate is so similar to Southeast Asia um, that they just do so much better inside. And so for me, working with animals and getting them outside, specifically turtles, um, they just thrive and they just don't like to be inside. So um, that uh, opened up some real estate and kind of got me um, looking at more of um, what what is it that I can do um, that doesn't drive me to have a lot more complexity into um, what I already have. And Asians, uh, Asian snakes just fed right into that. They're an easy, uh, the, the, um, the requirements for care are very similar to some of the Asian turtles. Um, and, uh, and I, like I said, they don't require a lot of heat. So being able to go into that room and work with, with some of these really, really cool, uh, species, um, that's, uh, that's kind of what's got me going into these clubits, but to, to touch on what, what I think your question was, what, what other animals or what, what, what does the rest of the, cl the cl uh, collection look like? Mm -hmm. So, um, let's see, definitely the Grabowski are, are a big part of it. Um, the, the emerald tree boas, um, I have, uh, a number of the, um, bamboo rat snakes. A lot of it came from, uh, Matt, uh, over the last couple of years, although this is a difficult guy, man, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> we, have, we have talked about trading a lot. I mean, I, I have a tendency not to try to sell stuff. I don't know why I just, um, but I, I definitely like to trade and I've been trying to trade with this guy, Matt for a while, but, um, uh, it's always an excuse on how busy he is, um, or the weather's so cold. Um, you know. well, next week you're getting a box. So just relax there, Mike. <laughs> Um, I'm not so, traveling next week. Yeah. So, uh, that, I mean, honestly, that, that's where it's at right now. It's, uh, it's sort of been a, uh, a build. So I'm right now, I haven't really invested too much outside of, cause I'm, I'm redoing that room. I've got everything torn down. Um, uh, I, I, I build my own cages mm. and, uh, and so I've been really making them sort of customized and fit to make it to, with, with specific species in mind, but being able to, to build it. So right now I, I got about half the, 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 the racks and the cages done and, um, and they're kind of custom custom fitted into the room. So 
that, that's where it's at right now. But hopefully when you ask me next time, I'll have a little, a little more of a variety to, to share with you. But I have, I think I've got, um, from Matt, I've got uh, Coxeye, uh, Volante. Um, what else did I get from you, Matt? Pulcher. <laughs> Pulcher, I got those, yeah. Um, File snakes? No, uh, yeah, 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 I got one. Yeah, I got a male. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, uh, it sends me just a male, which isn't helpful at all. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. It was really, uh, you know, it, uh, it it's it's great because, like like I said, it was um, being able to work with Asian stuff, Asian species uh, specifically, and then being able to connect with Matt. Him and I just clicked it off, and uh, he's just I don't folks that maybe haven't met him, but he's a very uh, generous and, and uh, very friendly and open guy. Busy as all heck, but um, but uh, that 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 it just deems him a good human, which is a a good friend to have. So. <laughs> nice. So. What what about the Grabowskis? That's a, a relatively recent snake to enter herpetoculture. Um, I I have to admit that I was into the I had Taiwans and Blue Beauties and the big or three Ophis yeah. or Lefe, whatever we're gonna call them. Were were very high on my wish list. Um, I've since moved those on, but as soon as as I was moving those out, Grabowskis were hitting, and I was like, son of a bitch. <laughs> those <Yeah>. are cool. <laughs> So what about you know, those did it for you? Um, uh, man, that's uh, one was availability and timing. Um, is mm-hmm. a lot of things happening in, in here. You're, you're, like I said, I was in an, uh, a transition period and, um, and, you know, camera had gotten in some, some of these animals and, and, uh, and so I just pulled the trigger and, and, and bought some, you know, it's interesting because I, I wish I had bought more at the time. Um, uh, but I've, I say that, but right now I'm sitting on probably uh, without the adults, like 36 animals because they produced really well so far. Um, but they're just a really, really, they're intelligent. Um, you can, they are watching you in that room and you know, they are thinking, um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, and they're just beautiful. Um, I know there's some controversy people were, were initially when they were coming in, were questioning whether or not they are true Gabowskis. And, and when you look at the holotype that people were pointing to online, it, the, the patterning didn't, didn't match, but, you know, quite honestly, th- there is some differences going on and, and I'll tell you two reasons why I think there is first off, um, uh, as people are bringing these animals in, um, I got photographs of, of these animals coming in, in, in big group settings. And, and there's, you know, 10 animals in a, in a, in a, in a tub all together. And you start realizing that they all look very similar, but the patterning is different. So yeah. some of them look just like what you would see um, that, that, were, that were used to describe the species, right? This gunmetal gray with this beautiful yellow uh, uh, neck and, 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 uh, and, 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 um, and belly. And, and yet other ones were more brown. Um, some were yellow, but they were all collected in the same area. And it just kind of highlights we... We have a tendency in 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 uh, in, in herpetology and and also just in, in other things in our lives, right? We we always think we know everything and we learn and we write care sheets and we do we describe species and the reality is we are always in a situation where we don't know what we don't know. Exactly, and we're always in that room, and so you see these animals coming in and and uh, I think that drove a lot of the controversy. I still think a lot of gene- genetic work needs to get done to to figure out. Um, how these match up. Um, but I've seen posts online that, that make me wonder what else is going on there because 
the eggs from the animals that 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 I produce are um, they're bulky. They're they're more almost like a chicken egg. Uh, maybe not as as uh, shaped like that, but that's the kind of size. But I see a lot of people posting images of the eggs that look like long, chubby fingers, and and that and the animals I produce, uh, they those eggs have have never looked like that. Um, so, and yet the animal kind of looks similar, um, has a lot more yellow. So it makes you wonder, um, what is it that we don't know yet that we think we know? And uh, there's something definitely different there. Um, you know, you guys know animals enough that if the Typically, species that that are, are the same, they produce eggs that look relatively the same. Um, not always, but um, you might have an odd egg here and there. But as a clutch, as a whole, they're relatively consistent. So um, there is something different there. With uh, maybe it's just locale, maybe it's um, I don't know. But but uh, there is uh, something there to make you kind of want to do a research yeah. project on and and, uh, and find out more. So. so so with the Grabowskis, just in case there's listeners that don't know what we're actually talking about. This is a subspecies of Asiatic beauty snake. So think Taiwan beauty snakes, blue beauty snakes. Can you just talk a little bit about where they're from um, and, the, and the habitat? I'm kind of putting you on the spot here, but I'm assuming- No, no, that's okay. I, uh, you know, part of when you get these animals is learning about that yeah. stuff. And there's not, and quite honestly, there's not a whole lot of information about it. Um, everybody treats them as if they're cave dwelling rat snakes. And so that's where they're from. Um, but the data that, that at least I got when, when these animals were provided to me where they were from the highlands of Sumatra um, and more in, in a field setting um, than in caves. Mm -hmm. And so um, when you start thinking about that, now, quite honestly, um, when I first heard that, I was just wondering, really, are these really, because when you look, when you read about Grabowski, that's what they talk about. They're all in caves. Um, and, uh, and these animals... You know, I have them set up um, individually in, in big cages. So they're four foot by three foot tall by two feet deep. And I have um, about 10 inches of substrate that taper off to the back. So it's, it's deeper at the back than it is the front, but overall it's about 10 inches. And there's branches and cork bark and tubes and plants and stuff, um, giving them options for where they want to hang out. And they are... They're definitely arboreal. They, they spend a lot of time up in the top of the cork in, in, in the cork bark and branches, but they also spend a, a whole lot of time down in that substrate burrowing, making tunnels. And they, really? they will go down one tube of cork bark and make a tunnel and come out the other side. Um, and they're always making changes to those tunnels and they sleep underground, um, which I, I just didn't expect. Hmm. And I wouldn't have gotten that had I not them set up that way. But again, that was, one of the reasons why I wanted to set them up in big cages was to kind of see what they, what they, what they do. Um, and so, and just from that, like I said, having those enclosures and having them set up that way, it, it looks natural inside there. Um, they have a lot of, uh, of uh, space to, to roam and, and select. Uh, but the, it also brings out their personality a lot more. They're, they're highly interactive. And, um, mm -hmm. and, uh, I, I would also note, um, they don't look the same today as they did when they first came in. Their color is significantly brighter today um, and more vibrant today than they were when they came in. Now, I don't know if that's related to stress, um, but uh, like I said, their behavior is different. Their color is different uh, today than it was when they first came in. So, so something's there. So when you, you received your animals, let's just talk a little about the history of your, your colony. 
how big were they? Like, did you get sub adults, babies, adults, and then just yeah. kind of talk about growth rate and general care, that kind of thing? Yeah. So, um, let's see. Uh, I got them in as adults, um, and uh, for sure, I mean, the 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 male of one of them is probably six foot. It's a big animal, um, a lot bigger than I was expecting when uh, when I when I when I ordered them. I wasn't. <laughs> Again, Asian Asian snakes and clubbirds. I wasn't expecting a six foot cave dwelling rat snake at the time. Mm-hmm. But uh, um, and there, uh, the actually the the first one of the females came in and she was gravid, and that's kind of how it started. Um, and uh, so yeah, so we had them about probably three weeks, and I had them all isolated in those black boxes, like I was talking. So it's a black box with a smaller black box on the inside um on on newspaper and water bowl and i opened up one time and 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 there she is curled around um about uh seven eggs uh all perfectly glowing white which was really really cool to see but it also also highlights i mean imagine what this animal went through from the point of being collected to here while she was gravid i mean that that is being gravid itself is a a physiological stressor and uh, it has definitely changes to their immune system let alone going through this, but, um, they all do great. I haven't, I haven't run any medic medications on them. Um, my, my, my theory is this, um, they're healthy, they're heavy. Um, they grow, uh, they, they shed and they eat. And, and so, um, at some point I will probably run, uh, fecals on them when I start changing out their cages and doing more. But for right now, it's been two years in captivity and, uh, two and a half years, and and uh, I haven't 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 done anything outside of making sure they were hydrated and making sure their stress levels were uh, were taken care. Of. Granted, I didn't hold them or or mess with them for for probably six months. I didn't I, I didn't even really touch them outside of trying to clean their cages. Um, so eggs. Um, I collected uh, uh, two bits of data. I, I, I there's a lot of information on on Ridley on incubating mm-hmm. eggs for Ridley. And so I kind of use some of that as a guideline for, for how I incubated, um, but sure, just not, ne- not necessarily knowing how they're going to, what the success rate is going to be. Um, but uh, using that technique, all of them hatched. Um, nice. And uh, yeah, it was great. And, um, but they were feisty coming out. I mean, they are little Velcro babies. I mean, mm-hmm. they are nippy and bitey and, and, uh, and musky and, and I thought, man, I need to send these to Matt because they are. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, but actually, uh, they've calmed down. Um, actually, here's an interesting bit of, uh, of data on just um, the third clutch. No, the, the, I'm sorry, the, the fourth clutch. So um, since then, this is the I've now had four clutches of eggs from from the two different females. Um, and the the fourth clutch was um, I didn't know she laid them. So I told you they make these little. Um, subterranean uh-huh. cavities around and uh and she had laid a bunch of eggs underground and uh and so one day i was in the cage i should have known something was up because i hadn't seen her in a while uh, usually they're they're out uh, at least their heads are poking out watching uh but i hadn't seen her in a while and sure enough i uh, went, went, went in there one day to, to spray and mist and whatever and uh there were babies in there Primary. so which was really cool right and honestly for me what does that tell you you have an animal that laid eggs that you didn't know about in, in, in what it would presume to, presume to be um, a, a natural way. 
and they the environment was healthy enough that all the eggs hatched. So, um, but there were twelve. So she laid twelve eggs, um, and uh, all of them hatched. But they are as docile. Um, like if the other ones were Velcro babies, this mm-hmm. clutch um, is the opposite. I can pick them up, hold them. They eat out of my hand. I mean, they're mm-hmm. they're they're different. They're just not now. They're smaller than uh, than, than the ones that I artificially incubated. But their their behavior is different. They just they're not they're not defensive and they're not flighty. So um, explain that to me. Were these clutches? Did you put the male with the female, or was she just dropping from sperm she had retained from the wild? No, I uh, like I said, I got everybody set up, um, and then I just I just paired them up, okay, and I do you. that periodically without knowing when they're really ovulating. I just um, put them together a couple times a month. Um, and, uh, leave them that way for a night or two and then separate them and then put them back and separate them. So I was constantly just trying to, uh, and, and every time, at least I, I have noted, uh, copulation on all of them, um, at least, uh, three or four times after putting them in there, but usually it's at night. I haven't seen them do it during the day. I'll find them in the morning and they'll be laying on the, on the cage floor copulating. And, uh, which is again, it's just really cool to see. Mm-hmm. That's so how many adults do you have? So, uh, 2.2 adults. Like I said, I wish I had done a little bit, um, you know, Matt, again, it's really hard to get him on, on, uh, on communicate. He would have told me to get more, but he didn't. And, um, it's totally Matt's fault. hundred percent. It is. It is. (laughs) Uh, Everybody should know that. I I think it's a good way to to point fingers at Matt. Um, yeah, so 2.2 uh, adults, and then right now 36 uh, offspring, yearlings, and, and, and hatchlings. So um, that's a lot. I had to build a rack for that. Yeah, <laughs> wasn't expecting 36. But but you know everybody said, well, you should you should sell and you should trade and whatever. Um, here's what's cool about it: they the raising them from hatchlings, seeing when they're coming out of the egg and what they look like. Um, even the yearlings are significantly brighter. And I mean, the yellows are coming in on these animals that it's just, it's hard to say you want to go send some to, to Matt, um, because they're so pretty. Um, but it's also just watching the transition and taking photographs of the animals as they go mm-hmm. through these, uh, these stages of development. Cause I don't think we've ever no. done that, um, anywhere. So being able to kind of photo document, uh, the, 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 the stages, I do it every probably six months to take photographs. And uh, just so I can have a log, not every one of them for sure. Um, I know people do that and they click a lot of data. I would love to do that. Uh, but as you guys noted, I don't have the time, you know, probably you guys where you're collecting that much data, but, but definitely um, a, a, as many as I can and just having some, some documented photographs of as they grow. So that's kind of where that's been. Hmm. But. So, well, and that's always something like I go back and hit myself over the head every now and then, <laughs> especially with, like mandarins and some of the different moles that I've produced over the years. And I'm like, I really wish I knew what that animal looked like now. Yeah. Or, <laughs> yeah. It, and it's just because there's so much variation that you just don't account for. And then you see pictures, people post and you're like, Oh, what the hell? Why'd I sell that? For I know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, like I said, even the animals that I got in, they don't look like they, they, I mean, they're just different. They look a lot more, I mean, the colors are a lot brighter. And so watching these things develop and it's hard to say, I know everybody breeds animals and they say they want to keep back the nicest ones. Um, uh, and, and are they, maybe they're looking for a specific genetic trait they want to go off and, and, uh, and tease out. 
I think it's difficult to do because just like you said, you go people mm-hmm. will, will show you animals three years later and you're like, oh my gosh, you know, I had no idea it was going to turn out to be that beautiful, you know. Um, but at the same time, that that's also a lot of the 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 fun of what we're doing here, right? I mean, being able to send yeah. animals to your friends uh, and have them raise it up and then then send you a photograph and you're visiting their house, they pull out an animal that you produced, and it it's. It's just absolutely uh, stunning. Is it's really that's rewarding as well. So that's cool. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, we we haven't had Stan Grumbeck on the show, but Stan and I we we've always shared this mutual understanding of trying to match each other's collections. Yeah. And part of that it was just purely because if something happened to one another, you know, at least there was other bloodlines available so that we could continue on with different projects. But that's that's always one of the things and um in conversations even with rob stone that we had on recently is trying to get the animals into the right people's hands because at the end of the day that's the bigger part of the picture especially now that we're facing some of these new legislation changes with lacy acts and all kinds of stuff where we really want to make sure that we can continue on with some of the animals that we have in our collections going forward. Yeah. You know, that, I think that's the, that's honestly one of the toughest things, you know, that, that when I look at, at this, this hobby or this industry, I know folks keep calling it an industry. When, when I, when, when we look at it, it like being able to work with the animals and, 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 and house them and maintain them is one part of it breeding. And then, uh, is the next stage of it, but then trying to figure out what to do with the offspring in a way where finding the right people, which is which us here having this this discussion here, building a network of people that that you know you can send animals to, um, and it and it it enables the industry to stay healthy and doesn't doesn't work against it. I think that's that's a huge challenge, and I think trying to go do that with some of our shows is is a is a struggle. You know, I, we used to run the East Texas Herb Society, and it was it was a, a captive bred only show. Um, and it was great. It was one of the biggest shows in Texas for a long time. Um, but the industry has definitely changed. It's growing huge. And, uh, um, and, and that has its, its positives and negatives. And I think we're finding some of the, 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 the positives, uh, but also dealing with some of the consequences of, of some of those things. So, which yeah. is driving some of that legislation, unfortunately. But no, I agree a hundred percent on that one. Um, you know, Mike, you kind of went into this, and this is something I always find very interesting from personality to personality, but especially after sending me some pictures and asking me my preferences for cage style um, related to background color, uh, would you mind uh, going into some of your keeping style? Because you did mention racks, you didn't mention cages, you mentioned yeah. quarantine caging. I mean, what is your preference? Because the new cages I saw, they kind of bring into some of the Applegate style cages that yeah. have the past. Yeah, you know, um, again, I'm a, I am in development stage, I guess, right now. So I would say um, I don't, and I've talked to a number of people about what with the way they're keeping their animals, and people are racks, and then there's anti-rack people, and people that want to. I, I think you got to find a way to to find balance and what is whatever works for you i don't think the animals are going to be um negatively uh, affected by the way that we we keep them in racks or in cages i think that as long as the goal is that you are trying to find the best way to 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 raise up healthy animals that's that's the key my my strategy um it's optics it 100 it's optics i want to be able to go in into the snake room um and uh, i want to be able so 
I'll give you my vision. If you want a vision, but I'll give Let's you a vision. Let's hear you. Uh, yeah, <laughs> all right. So, so my, the way I want this room to be is I want to have um, glass, or glass front cages from about the ceiling down to about mid and then racks uh, about, about waist high down to about uh, knee level and then um, storage on the bottom. So that when you walk in, okay, you're going to get a little bit uh, glitch in, or insight into my personality, but everything is symmetrical, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? So, so um, and you guys, I'm sure can appreciate that. It, it, mm -hmm. uh, it's aesthetically pleasing um, and you can see the animals. I want, you guys both said you're busy. I'm really busy where I work. We got, um, it, it, we have, there's not a lot of time, right? So it doesn't leave you a lot of time. So you got families and kids and their activities, I want to be able to go into the room and be able to do a quick walkthrough and make sure everything is okay. Animals are healthy, have water and all those things. I don't have time to open up every rack and look at every water bowl. I want to be able to walk through there. So having glass fronts is huge. Um, I also want the animals to be able to, to roam and, and have some um, inquisitive natures that uh, are behaviors mm -hmm. that they can go off and, and, uh, and, and, and implement. Um, and so I want cages that do that. So the way I have them right now, uh, the ones that I'm just building are are these uh, two feet by two foot cages, but they are they're more Applegate. I I I, I personally call them Trumbauer because some of you guys know Craig Trumbauer, yeah. right? Um, man, what a great guy! Uh, just another good human. But um, he's a huge snake guy, and when I, he showed photographs of his cages, he's a cabinet maker, woodworker, uh, absolutely, uh, really pays a, a extreme detail or uh, attention to detail. So they're, they're beautiful and they've lasted a long time and he still has a lot of his cages, but they're built that way where they have uh, a, a top and a bottom um, and they allow the animals to go from one to the other um, as, as they need to. And that was sort of my vision of when I was building my cages was how can I do that with materials from today um, that aren't heavy and, and, uh, and burdensome like that out of wood and plywood. Um, and that's, that's really what I was, I was working on. So, but the colors are, again, it's like, what looks cool? What, what, if the animal, like, look at cock's eye, I mean, how many times have you seen a cock's eye and you're like, oh my gosh, man, that is absolutely as bright a red. And the, the absolute symmetrical patterning of that stripe down the back, right? They're just an amazing, um, uh, visually appealing species. And so if you're going to have them in a cage that's displayed, what is the best color to make that one? I don't want the animal to be stressed out. Uh, so I don't want them to feel like they're being exposed, but which drives stress. Um, but I also want to be able to say, what can, what can make that, that color pop out as much as possible. So that animal stands out when I'm, when I'm, when I'm, when I'm going by it. So anyway, a little, maybe a little more artistic than, uh, than, than normal, but, um, but that's where my brain's at right now. So that it's, 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 it's easy to manage, um, is visually appealing and, uh, and it's, it's healthy for the animals. That, that's where my brain's at right now. That's my, and Mike, do you, do you do light cycling in that room or Man, anything of that nature? Yeah. You know, that's an interesting question. Like what role does light cycling have? Um, and I struggle with that right now. It's, it's on a 12 on 12 off cycle. Um, and sometimes it, it varies depending on, there's no windows in the room. It's all, it's windowless. And so it really depends on, on the light in the room, the actual fixtures. I have LEDs that I just installed and, and right now it's 12 to 12. Um, and each cage has its own lights. So the room may be mm -hmm. off um, during the day. Uh, each cage has its own um, LED light. 
and uh, and then on twelve to twelve. But I have been struggling with that notion of what what effect does does life cycle have on animals, or do they just adjust to what is there? Hmm. Does it doesn't matter how much how much how much influence does life cycle uh, the light cycle have on on the the the, the animal? What are you guys' thoughts? Oh, I think it has an effect. I also think it depends on what latitude the animal comes from. So Grabowski, I'm assuming, are near the equator, not necessarily on it, but near it. Is that fair? Yeah. 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 So they're going to be naturally, since they're down near the equator, getting that 12 and 12, which is basically what you get when you're at the equator. Um, sure. But at the same time, I have no idea. That's my answer. I mean, we did the brumation bonanza episode and I read all these journal articles and put together this super scientific bunch of goopity goo. And everybody was like, yeah, I don't cool them. I keep them at 80 <laughs> degrees all year long and they produce babies. So, you know, I, I really, I think that there's a lot of cues that are, are going into reproducing these animals that are important to the snakes that we don't even know exist. So uh, because yeah. we're not snakes and, and that's, um, one of the things we talk about in science all the time is like, when you think, you know, everything, you then learn what you don't know and know, learn, you know, nothing. The brumation Absolutely. episode has changed yeah. my damn life <laughs> because I went into that thing. It was like, this is going to be great. And came out the other end and had all these people reaching out to me. And I'm, I'm now completely obsessed with, with what the hell makes them go in human care. Um, and that's just that's why I like the podcast. That's why I like you know this this whole world we live in. So yeah, no, I think yeah. light's doing something. But like one of the things I've thought about with light. So we had incandescent lights forever. They're giving off one wavelength of light. Now we have these yeah. LEDs, and I've got LEDs in the cages in this room right now that I bought at Lowe's. They're the simple under the counter light for your kitchen. And I, yeah. I didn't know it when I bought them, but I can make the damn thing go blue. I can make the thing go yellow. I can make that, you know, well, which lights do you, like, which wavelength's important? Then you start thinking about it. And you're like, well, neither of these things are what the damn sun's doing. So does it even exactly. matter in the end? So, yeah, no. Yeah. So that's my response. And I don't know if that was a response, but that's what I'm going to go with. That was that was exactly where my brain was, only you just, you just uh, expressed it more eloquently than I could have. So, <laughs> no, uh, thanks. Basic, basically, um, we don't know what we don't know. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, but that's again what what I like about what you just said. Um, science proves out that we have a lot more to learn, and we're always in that mode. Hence, why science is such a cool thing, right? Because yep. you're always you're always in that mode of finding out that you didn't you didn't know what you thought you knew, and there's time yeah. to go off and do some more research. So um, right. that that's funny because you know you guys. Let me ask you what what you think about it everybody has care sheets right now. Yes. I don't know how you guys feel, but I mean, everywhere I go, everyone's got care sheets. And I, I think care sheets are great um, to give somebody like when they get their first um, uh, bearded dragon or they get yes. to give them some general guidelines to make sure that that animal that's going from you to them um, has the best chance of survival. Uh, um, but they're not gospel, right? No. I mean, it, it it, it it is something that I think we are getting ourselves too caught up in. Th think about like my, my first exposure to snakes and probably your guys was out in the field, out in yes. out in the wild, whatever. When you look at at kids today, um, and, and a lot of this industry, it's reptile shows, and they're getting 
a deli cup with an animal in it and a care sheet. And so it's, it's, it's us in my mind domesticating um, the process uh, and simplifying the process of animal care to enable this industry that, that we're having, which is not necessarily a negative thing, but I think we all want that, right? We want to, we want to know how to take care of our dogs and cats and, and, and reptiles are becoming um, a significantly more mainstream. Um, but it always bothers me a little bit because it, it, everybody uses these, these spreadsheets and these website blogs that say you have to keep them at these temperatures and these things, even Emerald tree bows. When you look at what temperature folks say Emerald tree bow is at, it's high. Um, and yet you wonder when you look at, um, uh, another cool thing to go off and go do is find, find other animals or other fa- flora fauna from that area and read up on the papers of what, like the, the plant industry is great. They have a lot of data on, on how to manage the plants from the areas where a lot of these animals are from. And when you look at some of the, 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 the temperatures that these, that these plants do well at, um, they're significantly cooler than what we're keeping some of these animals at. Um, mm-hmm. and so it just kind of makes you wonder if we're again, heating things too much, maybe they do okay with, with that, with the heat, but do they really need to be heated that much? And, and how much do we really know about, about those, uh, those, uh, those sheets? My problem well, and, with the care sheets yeah. is that I see this with, with students, um, and I'm not picking on students. I'm just simply, I'm in the business of teaching people and I've seen over the past two decades with my decade and a half that when I started teaching in the early two thousands, I could get away with saying like this phenomena, this organism, this, whatever occurs from here to there. And it was almost part of the, 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 the psyche that we could have ranges of things. Okay. Like that was a concept that I could teach and it yeah. was very, straightforward now in today's world i think it's because we have information at our fingertips uh it almost seems like the world in a weird way we've gotten more information but that information's led to people wanting absolutes so basically they want to go on people want to go on they don't even know if they want to go online you just go online you search corn snake you get that care sheet and then you're like done everything i need is right here um, and, yeah. and it's just not the way we, we don't do things the way we used to when it comes to, to this stuff. Um, I think the care sheets are, I think they take a lot away from the hobby. They, they're really good to build a, a skeleton, but they're yeah. not the muscles and the organs and the skin of the hobby. They're, they're, you know, And yeah. figuring that stuff out, the viscera of the stuff with trial and error and tinkering and messing with your herpstat and data loggers and govies and all that kind of that's the part that I love. Like that, that's way more interesting yeah. to me than keeping a snake yeah. in a cage and feeding it a mouse once a week at 82 degrees with a 12 on 12 off life cycle or light cycle. Yeah. You know, that that's the fun part is just figuring it out and maybe finding out your way is a little different um, than everybody else's. Like you might find out you don't need to freaking brewmate your snakes. We're back there again. Cause I can't give it up. Uh, so anyway, you know, if, wow. if you just read the character, so somebody... that's how you do it. I'm gonna have to listen to this podcast, man. Somebody's <laughs> having a hard time letting go, man. I am. I, 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 <laughs> no. You know, um, I think in conversation of care sheets, when we had Chaz on talking 
about snakes and adders, mm-hmm. his pet store. Mm. The way that he approached care sheets, I think, is the way that we should be in the yes. industry. Well, I didn't hear and that was, and and that was, it is a directed question related to conversation, and related to research finding before they actually sell the animal, so that kids or new hobbyists will end up having all these questions they have to find information about, research it, and then go forward from there, which pushes a level of education going forward on the animals, but also the areas of interest of where it relates then to note keeping as well as the optics, because he gives the new keepers diaries of which they actually write information related to shed cycles related to feeding habits and it creates a bigger picture but unfortunately we've created an industry by which monetary gain is drawing and it's taken away some of the aspects and some of that to be frank i think is driven by um and this isn't to sound derogatory but some of the big names in the hobby where if you're directing and, and kind of promoting that this is your life and this is your lifestyle based upon just breeding snakes, I think you're creating a allure that may not be a true allure related to yeah. keeping animals and, and doing it properly, yeah. I would say. Yeah, doing it, doing it the right way and doing the right thing sometimes becomes a, a, a balance and it's a difficult thing to tease out. I, yeah. Like I said, I, 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 I see these, um, these care sheets having a, a, a role. I just, um, you know, I, a recent experience with a, with, um, a family, they have a, a red-eared slider, um, probably uh, the cockroach of the turtle world, not in a negative sense, but like a, a nuclear holocaust could happen and there will be cockroaches and red-eared sliders um, <laughs> yeah. everywhere. They're, they're just a relatively indestructible turtle. They're cold tolerant. They just, you know, they're everywhere in the pet trade. Um, in fact, I was, I, I was on, on a, uh, for work, I had to be in Russia and I had a, a day and a half where I had to myself. So I ran to the, the Moscow zoo and I'm thinking, Oh, well, man, I'm going to see something. It's Russia. It's got to be cool. And the only turtles they had in their moats were red-eared sliders. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was painful. Um, mm-hmm. But, but uh, they, I could not get them to put their red-eared slider. We're in Houston. Red-eared sliders are in the ponds and creeks all over the place. And, uh, but I could not get her to, to deviate away from her care sheet that she got from a pet shop on red-eared sliders to keep them at this temperature. Mm-hmm. Um, and no matter how much I told her that they're, they're actually outside in here in Texas, um, I couldn't get her to, to move it outside because the care sheet um, highlighted a very specific regime for, for care. So um, like I said, I mean, they, they're, they're good. And uh, the animal, um, uh, on, the, on the flip side, she was very dedicated to her animal. And yep. uh, she wanted only, only the best care that, that we humans could give. Um, uh, and, and sometimes that's okay. But, but uh, as a whole, as an industry, I, 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 I like what you just said, Matt, where it's being able to get it where it, it gives them a basic foundation so they can get the animal established at home uh, and, and have it uh, as their pet, but then have enough left over where it, it, it drives their, their interest into going off and looking at, well, what, where is it really from? I mean, how many snakes have you have, have people bought where they get it at a pet shop and it's a deli cup 
and they have no idea actually where it's from. <laughs> you know, what what country did it even come from? Um, and uh, and sometimes it could be even in their, in their own backyard, and they they don't know it. Like like isopods, by the way. <laughs> um, anyway, back to isopods. Well, I mean, I would I would bet most ball python keepers don't even know where most of the ball pythons have originated from in terms of their export. Yeah, I, I bet you, you that's know. true. And, and maybe that doesn't matter. I don't know. Maybe that's okay. Yeah. It, it definitely, I'm not, I'm, I'm definitely not putting any judgment. I'm just more of, no, I, you know, it's one of, I, I just think we've domesticated it yeah. too much. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's a great way to, to, to sort of categorize what we're doing. It, for, for all intents and purposes, corn snakes, ball pythons, those are domesticated mm-hmm. species for sure. Um, yeah. uh, I mean, you, you look at, and, and even some of the, the, the king snakes that that are well I shouldn't say that I saw California king snakes for three hundred and fifty dollars or four hundred dollars and I I remember back in the day and, and maybe in the the early two thousands people were sell they couldn't they were producing so many they couldn't give them away and so I, I thought man but the, again the industry has a has a way of turning around and all of a sudden. Um, Things were that were plentiful are no longer plentiful, and the price goes up. And colubrids are really hot right now, which is interesting. Yeah, um, everybody's back trying to go off and, and produce, which I think is is really really good. I think colubrids. To go back to the question you guys asked at the, at, at the beginning, I think it's a it's an underrated species. Everybody talks about boa constrictors and and, and pythons and and um, and those are absolutely great. And there's a ton, like I mean, candoya. Uh, what, what a, a bizarre and fascinating um, uh, group of snakes. But colubrids, man, they're so, again, bag of Skittles. There's so many different mm-hmm. types, different colors. They're not giant snakes. They're handleable, um, really, really good species to work with. And I, it only makes sense to me that that as this industry is growing like it is, colubrids are coming back as, as, a, as a mainstream um, uh, animal that everybody wants to work with, which is cool. Yeah. So one cool. question I have about the colubrids you worked with to bring it back as well to Grafowski's, what do you yeah. feed them? Are, are you doing birds, mice, rats, man, and what's um, your feeding frequency? Man, I'm going to pull just full disclosure. My wife's a dietitian, so food, even though I'm not a foodie guy, um, I have evolved with food in my background's physiology. So we're always looking at micro and macronutrients and all that nice. stuff. Right, uh, right now, right Um uh, so I do mostly rodents, but here's my thing. Like, um, again, what do these things eat normally? I, um, I, and I get them from, from, uh, frozen rodents and I thaw them out and, and, uh, you know, the, the, the frozen rodent that's laying there on a plate next to a freshly killed rodent, they just don't look the same. They don't smell the same. <laughs> Um, uh, they're waterlogged and, and whatever. And I'm thinking, okay, well, maybe in my brain, um, I'm adding additional hydration in the animal. Um, but I, am, I, I definitely have a struggle with the quality of the, the food items that we're feeding and how do we make sure we give them these commercial diets. They eat these pellets. Um, we pack them full. Um, I bet you the fat content mm-hmm. on these rodents that we're feeding are significantly higher than what these animals are used yeah. to eating. Um, and I also think here's, here's, 
here's an interesting thing. I, um, one of the animal tree boas, I set it up. It's a big, big, huge female. Um, and, uh, and she is set up in a, again, four foot by, by three foot cage set up, um, all natural big branches up top and, and then down below. Um, and she was for the long time, just living in a very small arboreal cage. Um, and, but she's wild caught. And, uh, and so she's in captivity for, for quite some time, but definitely a wild caught animal. So she would perch up high and, and that's just her favorite spot. When she's hungry, she roams the cage and every morning I find her down on the lowest branch, two inches above the ground. Mm-hmm. You read about animal tree bows, everyone talks about their, their boreal and they eat um, a, a lot of uh, tree, tree rats and those kind of things. Yet this animal is constantly, uh, granted, it's an N of one and it's, yeah. it's a subjective observation. So take it, take it for, for what it is. Um, but it made me wonder, like, what is the chance that this animal, it's an ambush predator, that it's going to hang there and a rodent is going to wander around this entire forest till it comes within reach of this snake? Like, how often are the, is that animal getting fed at a meal? Um, and I guarantee you we're feeding these things every week. Yeah, um, animals that are on a captive diet that has all of this um, stuff that probably isn't um, what they're typically used to eating, and uh, and the fat content is higher. So anyway, that's all because um, my background and, and and my wife being a dietitian, that's where my brain goes. Are we are we doing justice by the by the food items that we're feeding? Now I know there's a lot of people that are and a lot of uh, companies off trying to look at improve the, the, mm-hmm. the nutrition and, and the nutritional content. And maybe it's calorically dense food items that we're, we're changing to, but, but there's, there is, there is room for improvement there, I think, and being able to um, provide a variety of food items versus I mean, I'm doing it right now. So it, by no means am I judging, but it makes me wonder, should we have more variety of things that um, these animals can be fed? Different types of rodents, mice, um, yeah. uh, feeding and rats and stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, heck, I, I shifted and started feeding a lot of chicks and quail even last year. I, and I, I just can't help but think that it's in the wild. They're not just eating one thing over and no. over again. Or if they're only feeding on one animal, the that animal is out ro- uh, foraging on all kinds of different things. So, um but at the other time, the other side of the coin is: Does it really matter in captivity if these animals are living longer in captivity than probably in the wild, um, because there's no threat of predation or or uh, disease? Everything is relatively quarantined and controlled. Are, are we? Does it really matter? But um, anyway, that's uh, maybe that's a topic for another another podcast. Uh, reptile nutrition. Well, we kind of go. We stay near the central theme, but we we wander. That's fine. <laughs> and this is something I actually want to talk about. Um, so last year, I, I talk about this all the time on the podcast, that I found the the Getula Kings. So Specs and uh, Easterns and going on. Yeah. Out, if, yeah. I know it's not a species. I've had people correct me. I'm just saying going eye for the phenotype. Um, and then Florida Kings and such. And I went from having no king snakes to four king snakes. And then I did the thing you're not supposed to do, which is count. And um, over the weekend, I found out I have 51 corn snake or king snakes. So I got a lot of king snakes now. And I, I have acquired quite a few that were sub adults and adults. 
And it's really interesting the body condition that these animals came in because the, the, the snakes that were like not necessarily retired breeders, but it was, I'm getting out of Kings, take my breeders. These are animals that are being bred every year. They're metabolizing um, excess fat through vitellogenesis, all that kind of good stuff. The condition of those snakes was very different than this is my you know, adult female, whatever king snake that I've had as a pet forever. Um, and I'm getting rid of it because I don't want it anymore. And in that situation, every one of the pets that was never bred, I mean, we're not talking obese. We're talking like critically obese. And one of them um, passed away, pissed me off, came out of brumation. My female um, Apalachicola king, and and when I got her, I had a friend go to to Tinley, um, and he called me and was like, "Hey, they've got a female going eye. Do you want her?" And I was like, "Well, how much? It was a good price. I got her." And he said, "She's kind of big. Like this thing <laughs> was a sausage. It was not a snake. Like you could feel <laughs> it. Literally had rolls in it. And I I did not feed her. She she didn't eat." in my care. Um, yeah. and, and then she brumated and she came out of, of brumation and she passed away. And so I did a necropsy. I took her up to school to show the Zeusai kids and, and, and grad students. Like, this is why we don't feed our freaking snakes every day. And I have pictures. I'm debating on the whether or not I'm going to put them on Instagram. Cause I know they're going to piss people off because there's a dead snake that's cut open. But when I opened up her abdomen, the fat deposits were such that you cannot see the organs. From her cloaca all the way up to her heart. Like, it's just fat after fat after fat after fat. Her ovaries were innervated with fat. Her kidneys were innervated with fat. Her heart was innervated with with fat. And she had neck fat. I didn't even know snakes could get neck fat. But she had, like, huge deposits of fat. And I just sit there and think, like, this was one of those pet situations. Was this thing given a mouse once a week because they followed the care sheet, bringing it all together? That says you feed it once a week. And, you know, that's what the person did. And it just cre- created this giant snake. Or was this a situation where it was fed a rat that was on the big end once every two or three, you know, two or three weeks, which is that the same as feeding a mouse every week? Like this, this nutrition thing, it's something that I'm about to dive into big time because I think it's really interesting. Um, and, and there's so many facets of care that come into this because then you're getting in the metabolism and the temperatures we keep the animals at and, and their ability to metabolize uh, the fat and then yeah, all that stuff. So, no, I think that, that this is a worthy topic of discussion because it, I've it, it, lots it, of fat freaking king snakes over the past Yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, these animals are in our care and um, – you know, uh, if you look at, I mean, talk to any veterinarian about um, the way that we give love to cats and dogs, and they will tell you we just overfeed, right? I mean, um, they you get these dogs and cats that, and we attribute care to feeding, um, mm-hmm. so it only makes sense that we're doing the same thing with uh, with with reptiles, right? I mean, you've seen some of the posts, and it's not a negative. People really, you know, put hats and and jackets on their bearded dragons yeah. and. Uh, constantly feeding them and things. And, and, uh, we, again, we've domesticated part of that to, to enable that to be there. But I, you know, I have a very similar story. I had a, um, a very rare, uh, turtle that a, a friend of mine produced 
and um, and uh, I was raising up a pair um, and doing what I felt was uh, doing the animal justice by feeding what I felt was a, a, a relatively diverse commercial diet. Um, and the animals were doing great. For, I mean, no health issues, nothing. And uh, and about three years into it, I went in there one day and and the animals in the enclosure and it looks alive, but not moving. And I thought, ah, oh, you know, and sure enough, I picked it up and the animal passed away. Um, and, you know, you immediately started walking through everything that's happened. Did something, you know, what could this be? You know, um, I had a necropsy done, had had uh, tissue samples were taken. Um, but when we opened the animal up, uh, the fat deposit, like, the, the inside was white, like there yeah. was nothing. And, and I just, and I didn't feel like I was feeding it. Like it didn't get fed every day. Um, but I, I was given a commercialized diet. Um, and it, it's, it's us not, again, not knowing what we don't know or always knowing what we don't know or not knowing what we don't know, but it, I mean, these animals come from areas that we have no idea what their natural history really is what they feed on, how frequently they feed on. And sure, this animal is going to eat the food that I put in front of it if it's healthy. Um, and I can trick a snake that eats lizards into eating rodents because it's easy for me to go buy a bunch of rodents and have yes. them in my freezer. And that makes it convenient for me. I do that, by the way. I'm not saying it's wrong. I, <laughs> I, easy. It's easy. Um, but it, is it the right thing to do? Doing it the right way versus doing the right thing. And and uh, and that was an eye-opener for me. That was a an animal, not only was it was it rare, but it also came from a friend of mine that produced it. And so it had a lot of personal meaning to it. And I mm -hmm. felt like I did something wrong by 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 not doing it justice. Um, but no. again, it was a learning for me to say, okay, more more diversity and, uh, and less commercial if I can make it. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it would be an interesting topic, I, I, I'm yeah. sure. Psychology rolled up into that as well. Human psychology rolling, rolling up into that as well. What, what am I current grad student, we talk about them all the time on here, Pei. Um, Pei is doing a thesis with the uh, Central Florida Zoo, and we're looking at creating an alternative diet for the captive indigo snakes that they have, because one of the problems that they have with their snakes is that they're fed the rodent diet, and when the animals come time to, to lay their eggs, they're getting a fair amount of dystocia, so egg binding, and they're trying to figure out why. So they're honing in on the diet, and we're working with these really awesome animal nutritionists and it's it, it's they came up with this alternative diet for the dremarkin and all it involves is a whole bunch of turkey meat from kroger oh. and casings and so we bought pay a sausage making machine and the casings and we got her or got them the um the turkey and she made these things or they made these things and we've we have an image of her feeding our yellowtail kribos they went insane for them and so here here we and we fed false water cobras these things so they're literally turkey sausage but they're not like hold on someone's gonna light me on fire for that we didn't put yeah, spices in there not sausages okay <laughs> it's turkey meat in a in an intestinal casing it's all protein but it's a lean so is, it, is, it, protein. is it just so is it just the turkey is it is it is it ground up bone and and uh everything well, we have just... um a a, a a bone powder so it's interesting it's, yeah uh and we got we got that from the animal nutritionists but you know these things were so easy to make the most expensive thing was buying the actual apparatus that makes them but pay 
pop like each one of them was the size of an adult mouse actually a little bit bigger um the snakes had no problem getting them down whatsoever uh and we were able to like control the nutrition a little bit more and not feed them a diet like like that something that is a little bit more similar to what they're feeding on in nature because uh dry yellowtail kribos in particular will i mean they're generalists they eat everything and anything but ground dwelling birds are very high on their wish list when it comes to feeding but it just shocked me how quickly the snakes ate them like i thought there's no way there's no cue here it's a freaking sausage (laughs) and no they like you know oh bird eat like that was literally the response so yeah that is and so this is a this is a research project you guys are working on yeah it's a master's thesis Mm mm-hmm that's interesting. See, I think there's some value in that. I, I would be, you know, I'd be curious to know if you would, if you were able to change the, the 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 content of that of that that turkey sausage, if you could make it whole animal um, versus yeah. piece part. Um, well, I don't know, man. And then look, looking at health and productivity, taking blood samples and seeing what what the what what, what what's different between domesticated animals and, and maybe some wild caught i don't know that, that's that's exactly what we're doing so there was a really cool uh, study that was done where um indigos were caught in the wild and basically the a whole workup was done so they were weighed the bot there was a body condition index created for them blood was drawn and then that was sent away to get all the metabolites and vitamin levels and uh fat content in the blood like all the classic stuff you do physiologically and the the point of the study was we're going to basically take the snakes that are fed rodents forever segue them over to this new diet which we are then going to send away to get all the metabolites for so we'll know that and then we're going to pull the blood and see does the blood change and get closer to the levels that were in the study from the wild uh but if this works like i'm going to scream this from the mountaintops because you can then, I mean, you can diverse. Now, granted, I don't think Joe Schmo should be messing around with all these various macromolecules because you can do some damage, but it's within the realm of possibility to potentially make some basic recipes that would add some diversity and, and, and you know, all that kind of good stuff. But like, that's the kind of stuff I feel like you know, we're so busy watching YouTube and seeing, I'll say it, idiots doing horrible things to snakes for clicks and that's what people think herpetoculture is and meanwhile there's other people that are like literally doing this kind of stuff we're talking about right now um and if this would take the face of herpetoculture i think herpetoculture would get a hell of a lot more respect unfortunately joe schmo public wants to watch some guy get tagged by a retic in the face and doesn't care about calcium levels and turkey meat and a sausage that a grad student's making not to get a little preachy. Small circle. Small, small circle. Small That's circle. Right. You know small circle. But big, big circle started as small circles, man. It's mm-hmm. yeah. you, you gotta start start that circle turning, man. It, um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I really think that that stuff is uh, is is huge. I, I really mm-hmm. think that you know we we are we we get to a point where we can stabilize and and convenient feed our animals. Um, and that's good enough. And quite, you know, quite honestly, the general public doesn't, I mean, everybody, um, they have their lives going on. Right. I mean, yeah. and so are they really going to spend the time to break down if they know they can go buy a package Back. of, of, uh, of, 
of Zach's socket sausage links off the, <laughs> the, the freezer at the local pet shop and be able to come home and 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 feed. We'll call them Zach fingers for uh, for, there we go. for for this podcast. But um, but what do they really care? They're assuming that it's 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 a product they can buy and feed their animal just like they do their dogs. Um, and mm-hmm. so it's I think it's hard for us to get the the mindset to change, but talking about it, I think is, is the, the absolute first step in getting folks to really think about um, their animals more than what they just bought in a deli cup. It was 75 bucks in a deli cup, getting them to really understand it. If, if we could give care sheets that, um, that highlighted a little bit of that natural history, where the animals actually from, what country is it from? Um, and, uh, and maybe some, some uh, things that talk about what they actually eat versus just telling them they eat they eat rodents, and um, yeah. uh, that I think that would be a step in being able to pull that package together and kind of give a little bit more information, a little more interesting information to get folks to be a little more interested in trying to find out more about the animal they just purchased. But anyway, 100%. That, that's a that's an ideal setting, maybe perhaps, but uh, so cool. It's a call to work for it, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely, uh, you know what? And in, 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 in the industry's defense. When you look at where we were in the 80s to where we're at right now, I mean, the amount of money and resources being spent at trying to f- find ways of better housing, um, heating, cooling, bedding, uh, ways to better understand how to um, uh I think all of that is just drastically improved. I mean, we're you're able to go to a show and buy anything you could possibly need for um, your animal uh in, in with with variety, not just one 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 source. So um, there's definitely progression there, and and I think these type of things, these research studies, and putting that out there and getting even if it means that 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 it's data get, that gets published, uh, mm-hmm. companies like ZooMed and places like that that are invested in trying to improve the the nutritional content of that of the food items that that we're feeding to these animals. Um, it's data, and data yep. data matters. So. Kudos, man. Hoo-ah. Yeah, thank you. Well, Mike, you, you kind of brought in like an interesting segue here. So over the years, you've really seen this hobby take many different directions. Sure. I mean, how do you see it changing in the future? Man, um, I heard some some statistics the other day. Wow, that's a tough word to say. Um, that just blew me away. When you looked at what happened in 2020, um, everybody went home, right? Everyone's working from home. And, uh, when you talk to veterinarians, when you talk to shelters, they tell you they couldn't keep cats and dogs in their shelters. They were just being adopted out. Right. Um, and reptiles, when you look at people that were importing animals in, um, and selling them, uh, the amount of money that was being, uh, um, turned over on, on reptiles during the, the 2020, 2021 timeframes, was staggeringly high um, and surprisingly high, but it's because everybody's at home. Um, and I think that over time, so that that was just one bit. We're going, wow, that there is a huge interest. If people have time um, and they're at home, then these things matter. Once people started going back to work, the shelters filled up the, with cats and dogs again. Um, and uh, you look at the reptile, uh, shelters and stuff, the, the people that are rehabbers and whatever, um, they got all kinds of animals coming back in. And, uh, and so I, 
I wonder where we're going. I, all this legislation, I don't think we're doing ourselves any justice. I was at a show just recently, and while it was well done, um, they had a lot of venomous stuff wrapped in, in, in deli cups with red tape um, to identify. It. I mean, it, it followed all the right rules. Um, but I think we just have, uh, I mean, there, there's an article out there right now about a, a Cobra that was, um, escaped here in Texas somewhere. Um, and, uh, I mean, those are the things that, um, while it's only a one, a one and of one, I think it has a trickle effect that, that feeds this legislation. And I think I'm not sure Matt if, or Zach, one of you just noted earlier that, that, that those type of behaviors in, in herpticulture get picked up as the norm um, when, when and so we're, we will get punished for those ends of ones um, mm -hmm. because they represent us. And my struggle, I think, is that we're not doing enough to help, help to police ourselves. And because we're not doing that, um, we're gonna get policed elsewhere. And I, I really think we would do ourselves um, a, a whole lot of good if we took ownership of the industry that we keep saying we're protecting and help ourselves drive it to a point where um, things like that become less and less prevalent. Um, uh, because I think the, at the end of the day, no matter what good stuff we're doing, what gets out and get, gets what's and what gets a bit out in the out on the internet is things like that a cobra that escaped and is still on the loose where somebody gets bit by a venomous snake, um, it was their pet. Those are the stories that just, uh, that, that eat us. As the industry as a whole, if, if the legislation still allows it, I think we will keep evolving what we're doing and getting better and better. Um, I think it's only inevitable. If you look at, just like I said, if you look at what, what's happened the last 20 years, even the last 10 years, um, the, the amount of, of resources being put into the development of technology and caging um, is is huge, and uh, and and rack systems, and and uh, and then the interest in what we're doing with, with with domesticating a lot of these species. At some point, you won't be able to point to that animal and say uh, it's it's a natural wild. You know, it has origins obviously back to to a wild caught animal, but it has been so genetically modified in captivity like a, like, like, um, dogs and cats that it, it doesn't resemble anything out in the wild anymore. So I think all that will keep going if we, um, like I said, can help, help ourselves, help each other and make mm -hmm. sure that we're doing to protect the industry that we keep saying we're, we're willing to, to, to protect. I don't know if that makes sense. That makes total sense. That was yeah pretty much the way I think about it. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. I, you know, we, at the end of the day, um, I definitely, I know everyone's the, 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 the freedom and the rights to be able to purchase and own um, uh, uh, reptiles. <clears throat> and we, we want to encourage that, <clears throat> but it, it's not all the same, right? Uh, being able to go get a, I mean, literally there were cobras at this show and I just, and, his, his, and quite honestly, there was, um, uh, there was a guy at the show, Alex English, man, if you ever get a chance to meet this guy, really really impressive guy i mean he's covered in tattoos but he really he was a really joy to talk to really really smart on uh, on the animals that he keeps um fascinating stuff um but but it uh it i don't know where i was going with that as i was thinking about the, the show and the reptiles i was just gonna highlight him um he's an interesting guy that that stood out to me at the show he, he definitely works with venomous stuff um but it's done with with uh um 
doing it the right, doing it, doing the right thing and the right way at the same time. And, and that's what stu stuck out to me is, as uh, the way this guy behaved and, and the way he was managing his collection. But, um, but having somebody go in there and, and buy a, a Cobra off a table, um, a wildcat Cobra at a table um, and be able to go home. It just seems like that was a lot as a little from an industry perspective, if we really want to make sure this industry thrives long-term, um, that is something that we need to even, you know, I know people are like bring up guns or whatever, but there, there, there's, there's, there's things to go do that you, in order to go get, use a gun, you get trained on being able to have a venomous snake like that. There is a level of responsibility above and beyond than owning a, a, a California King snake or a rat yeah. snake or a one snake, because if it does get out, it has direct, um, risk onto the people around you. And, and we need folks to make sure that they understand. And caging comes a long way in that, right? Being able to say, hey, if you're going to buy this, this also goes with this type of caging. Um, and you need to have this type of training in, in dealing with, uh, with venomous snakes. I'm not saying that's the right answer. I'm just saying something like that that has to be there so that that person who, quite honestly, like I did when I saw some of these venomous snakes, they were absolutely beautiful. Um, some of the animals were there, the the, 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 the blues on some of these arboreal vipers were just staggeringly beautiful um but but somebody else who's not as you know maybe new, new to the industry and can go there and see that and purchase that and bring it home and not necessarily understand the the risk or the consequence of, of their purchase i think that's on us as an industry uh to make sure that we're we're not enabling that to happen my, no i agree 100 percent. i mean we, um, the self-policing of our industry going forward needs to be yeah. something of a priority. And I'm definitely not saying we shouldn't allow people to own venomous reptiles, mm -hmm. but, but that is a hot button. One, it's got a, a associated risks. Um, you know, my, my struggle, uh, the second part of that, and I'll, 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 I won't, I won't bring it up anymore, but, but if you, if you have the responsibility for anti-venom and, and in the event you get bit, right? Um, a lot of hospitals, depending on the, on the species of snake, don't necessarily carry a stockpile of anti-venom. Um, and so when that, when you do get bit, if, and when you do, and you end up at the hospital, they have to call the local zoo. Um, yeah. and, and that's where that, and that's where it comes from. So now your decision to purchase the snake, maybe you're in a hurry and you, you, uh, weren't paying attention and you got bit. Now, now you're going to put the keepers at, at a zoo that are there specifically and have protocols in place to deal with venomous snakes and have um, a stockpile of anti-venom that they are constantly having to update because it expires. You're putting them at risk because uh, of this decision. And, and that cycle is where I think um, we as an industry uh, need to be able to go in there and say, hey, that, that actually, that risk trade isn't necessarily right for this industry. And we need to put some steps in place to ensure that that the uh, that that risk gets mitigated in it a little bit better than than what we're doing right now. Yeah. Anyway, two cents. But they were very very cool, very beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, I, you keep going back to that. I, I stood at this guy's table and, and just looked at his animals. I mean, he. There are a number of people there. They just did it absolutely. You know what? When when in this industry, a lot of people have a diverse collection. But then there are those people that you meet that have um, honed in on one or two species, and and you think, oh man, how how would that be boring? Would that? But they have done it in a way. It's just absolutely they they perfected it. 
and and uh, and these animals that they're producing are just like all of their energy is in this one species, and it, and it and they just do it absolutely brilliantly, and it's cool. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what their passion, their drive. I mean, even when I interview people um, to work for us, the first thing I always ask is, "What makes you happy?" Right? Because it's not about other aspects. Um, you have to be happy. You know, if you're chasing the almighty dollar, you're never going to be happy. Yeah. Um, but finding and honing in on some of those animals, most of the people, if you wanted to talk about it monetarily, most of the people that are very happy and passionate about their collections, those are the ones succeeding yeah. with finding new homes for their animals going forward too. My, my dad gave me a book when I was a kid and I just, and it took me forever to read it. Like your father's right. They give you books to read and they want to get you this, you know, it was um, do what you love. The money will follow. And, um, and man, that, that just the title of that, of that book, that message um, is so relevant in everything we do in life. You, you don't, you don't know, you don't really know it at the time, but doing what you mm -hmm. love, the money will follow. I, I was going to just say one thing that, in touching on that. Um, doing things that make you happy, right? Uh, there's a, and I forget the guy's name now, but he works with garter snakes. And and he, he does it, and I wish I could remember his name now, but he, he's got a website. Absolutely, like through the roof, brilliantly done those garter snakes. And I would have never even occurred to me to even go down a path of working with garter snakes, but this guy did it and did it in a way, I guarantee he's passionate about them um, and he, he's happy with them um, and it makes him happy and you can see it in everything he did. And I was like, I mean, he, I don't know. It, it was really, really cool to see his website. And I, 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 killing me that I can't remember his name, but whoever that guy is, find him, tell him his, his stuff is awesome. It was really, really cool to see okay. someone take something as off, off nominal as garter snakes and just, do the hell out of it really really well so cool stuff anyway all righty well cool well i think that's a a good way to segue into the ending of this is being passionate about the hobby yeah. and your collections as a whole and cool. i think that ends it on a good note yeah and, and work with the animals that make you happy i like that i did it i segued over to these king snakes there's a lot of people like king snakes yeah, king snake. Let's be honest. Let's be honest. <laughs> yeah, Zach. Let Let's be clear here. You 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 segued over to chubby king snakes. That's yeah. that yeah. was oh, a beast. <laughs> Rolly. Rolly the ro Rolly mm -hmm. Polly king snakes. Uh, yeah. No Dan, judging. Stacey, yeah. Thank you for getting me my yeah. chunky monkey. Well, I got our no no judging. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> All right. Well, if uh, people want to get a hold of you, Mike, talk some Grabowski. Yeah. Uh, how would you recommend they go about doing that? Oh man, um, I don't. I'm not on Instagram, and I don't have podcasts or anything like that. Best case is uh, through Facebook. Just uh, okay. IM me on Facebook. Don't don't add me as a friend. Um, I'm horrible at that. Just send me an IM, and then uh, I'll chat with you that way. All right. Well, thank hey, you. I really appreciate. Yeah, no, thank you guys. Uh, honestly, the, the, this this podcast, like I said, it was my first one, but I sat through a couple of them and listened. You guys. You guys do this really, really well, and um, it's enjoyable, and it's cool to listen to the to, to folks and their their perspectives. So, uh, kudos to you guys for for making it happen. I know you guys are busy, so thank value you. added. Good stuff. All right, that's what we're tr we're trying to add the value. So, thanks for the acknowledgement <laughs> there, and thanks for being our guest. We'll have to have you back on when you've produced another thirty six 
40 Grabowski. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. You guys watch your mailbox. There's going to be some snakes coming. I'm All sorry. right. Yeah. <laughs> you um, okay. So uh, this is, I think we counted it up. I think we're at episode 11. I hope that's correct. If not, we're at whatever so whatever episode we are at. But if you want to get a hold of me, um, I think most people know where to find me. You can find me on Facebook at Zach Loafman, and then on Instagram, Dr. Crawdad. So hit me up there. And then I'm going to say it again. Um, I'm not getting very many bites, which is shocking to me. Because uh, if people would have offered this to me when I was 20, I'd jump all over it. But we're still looking for grad students to work with snakes. Um, and we're trying to incorporate field work. So you might be able to work with snakes in captivity and out in the field. So uh, hit me up there. I'm always interested in young people that are into this thing. So that's where you can find me. Where can they find you at, Matt? You can find me on Facebook as well as Instagram under Sarpamitra. And you can also go to sarpamitra.com. Alrighty. So another episode in the books. Thank you all, and have a great night or day, whatever time of day it is you're looking for.